one of the key parts of this overthrow of our government is that it's occurring in state houses, it's occurring in city halls, it's occurring in county councils, it's occurring in school board meetings. There's been a cycle where our opponents have knowingly decided that taking over the election boards and taking over school boards is a path to victory for them and for long-term gain. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Fred Wellman, is co-founder of a new group called The Beer Hall Project. The name is a reference to Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, which didn't succeed, but was on his path to eventually seizing power in Germany. Fred wants to remind us that what happened on January 6th at the US Capitol and the whole stop the steal big lie is still ongoing, and that if it goes unpunished, bad things will happen to our democracy. Fred's just off a recent stint as executive director of the Lincoln Project, and he has a very interesting story of his path through our military and into politics. His Beer Hall Project is quite early in its development, and its aims are to fight on the front lines against the far right's campaign to erase and revise the events of January 6, 2021. You should check out their provocative and sobering launch video. I enjoyed getting to know Fred and to better understand his goals for the Beer Hall Project. I hope he finds a way to make something substantial of it, and I hope you will listen. So, first, my sponsor, then my interview with Fred Wellman of the Beer Hall Project. Launching a campaign? Change Digital launches campaign websites in as little as 72 hours using your templates built with your goals in mind. Choose your template, submit website content, and we'll take care of the rest. You'll also get social and email templates that are easy to use and match your website's look and feel. For less than $1,800, launch your campaign with a professional digital presence starting on day one. Visit changedigital.us to learn more and get started. Fred, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, Fred Wellman. I'm uh, currently a political consultant, co-founder of the Beer Hall Project. Uh, I've been a senior advisor and former executive director to the Lincoln Project. Prior to that, I was an Army veteran, Army service officer for 22 years in the Army, uh, serving as a helicopter pilot, aviator, as well as a public affairs officer. I owned my own communications firm focused on veterans issues for about 10 years. Well, that puts you in an interesting place in our politics in this time, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm your different kind of operative, that's for sure. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Right here in St. Louis. I just moved back to my hometown. So I grew up outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, went to West Point in 1983 from here. I just recently moved back to St. Louis from Richmond, Virginia. So not everybody goes to West Point. Usually you have to be pretty high achieving and somewhat connected to yeah. do, to do that. Connected. Well, <laughs> that's for sure. How'd you get to West Point? Well, you know, 1983 was the height of the Reagan era. Um, you know, there's a lot of patriots I want to serve. Uh, I had looked at the service academies. I liked West Point because of the fact that you could major whenever you wanted to, uh, the history, the tradition. Uh, my mom's cousin had been the dean at one point. So I really had a lot of steeping in that world. My dad was a World War II Marine. So we were a military-focused family. I only found out later we, we've served all the way back to the revolution, as a matter of fact. I applied, and I'd also applied to the University of Missouri. I got into Mizzou, uh, and then oddly I got into West Point. What, what makes West Point wonderful is not just about just your academic grades. Or, it, it's, a, it's really true a whole-person approach at West Point. So, you know, I'd been cat in the swim team. I'd been a state champion swimmer. I'd been president of this and secretary of that. And, you know, and then I did okay in the SA team. So uh, that's why I think I got at West Point because it wasn't just my grades. It was sort of – all that other stuff. And the other people I've talked to have been through that. It was pretty formative for them. Yeah. Oh, life-changing. How so? Well, you go to West Point. It's a very, the the, the training, the basic training, and, the, and, and, and you know, it's a four-year intensive program on military leadership uh, and on top of what is considered essentially an Ivy League education. So I went there as, like I said, a kid from Missouri. 
I mean, let's stay from day one. My first roommate was a, a, a black guy from Ohio. I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis. If you know anything about St. Louis, we didn't interact a lot with our, our friends of color. And so here I am rooming with a guy, <laughs> you know, so there's one of the things people talk about in the army. A lot of times there's this, there's this period where you realize everybody's wearing the same clothes. It doesn't matter what's underneath. It's a trope in a lot of ways, but for me, it really was a, you know, wonderful experience to be able to spend that time in basic training with someone from a very different background. Uh, and from there, you know, just the leadership training and the, the ability to see the world. I, you know, I went to different schools. I, um, was, was honed and, and I spent a summer as a drill sergeant for goodness sake, uh, if all things for a basic training unit in South Carolina. Carolina. So, so for me, it was such a great launching ground for a military career and it opened my eyes to the world. So I went from that kid from Missouri, the burbs of Missouri, to more of a worldly person and, and able to lead soldiers. And, and that led to, for me, all these things that I do are always sort of a, a stepping ground to, to stepping something to the next thing. And for me, that led to the ability to, to learn how to fly helicopters. And to my first assignment was in Korea, flying scout helicopters in Korea. Then I, I did Desert Storm. You know, So I, I, uh, the Army in West Point gave me such a wonderful view of the world and, the, and a, a worldly experience that it's, it's hard to imagine I could have lived a, a life like I did. There's days I look back at the things I was able to experience in 22 years in the Army and, and, and just kind of pinch myself that I was a fly on the wall for certain moments in history Got to invade Iraq twice, you know, liked it so much I went twice, <laughs> you know, but uh, went back for the food. You know, I really love kebab. Oh, yeah, and then there was a war. Um, but those were very important experiences, and I'm a better man for it. My military experience was uh, I watched Officer and a Gentleman. <laughs> Good fine show. <laughs> Does the, is the drill sergeant in there anything like, <laughs> like reality? You know, it's interesting because they use actually enlisted drill sergeant. So it's like that. It's like that. You know, we, West Point's a weird deal because it's actually upperclassmen cadets that do the training. So it's a, it actually in many ways much more toxic, I would say, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. But uh, I learned a lot, you know. But I mean, I mean, think about the cool experiences I had. I had this seminar my, my senior year at West Point, one of my last semesters at West Point. It was a coffee seminar, we call it. So it was just eight cadets in a class. And the professor was this guy named Major Petraeus, who was at the time getting his, his doctorate from Princeton. David Petraeus. Yeah, it's major. It's a young major, yeah. brand new major, you know? Yep. And, and eight cadets. Yeah, yeah. And we'd go into class, we'd drink coffee and talk about international relations for an hour. And, uh, you know, flash forward uh, five years, you know, he's a Lieutenant Colonel in the 101st Airborne, sees me in a training exercise and asked me if I married that girl I was engaged to because that memory is. Um, and then flash forward, um, you know, another 10 years, he makes me his spokesman when he was my division commander in Iraq during OIF-1. And then he becomes my my boss in Iraq. He's a three-star general. And then he gets this bright idea that since I don't have an advanced degree, I should go to Harvard. Like, really? Harvard? Okay, sure. Why not? <laughs> and, and guess what? I ended up going to Harvard. So, you know, it's, it's, and all that stems from that unique four-year experience and the career that followed it. What did you think of him? General Betrayus is a good, good man. You know, he's a great boss to me. He's very loyal to his, his guys. He's, uh, in many ways, is a, a mentor, helped me through some tough times when I was, I had some challenges, was a very good and patient mentor as I learned the ropes in the military. At the same time, he's a tough boss too, you know, and, uh, and, and, and he, his style is very unique. So I had to learn to be a better communicator working for him. Um, of course he had his challenges with the CIA failure and I actually helped him a little bit with that behind the scenes, which a lot of folks don't know. And, um, and he's gone on to kind of recover his career and, and has been a mentor. I don't, I don't hear from him much these days, but, um, you know, occasionally talk, but you know, he's, you know, he made his mistakes. I, I called him that day that he, that the, that he resigned from the CIA and he said, yeah, I did it. It's my fault. I'm going to take my licks. I said, that's great. Unfortunately, your pictures on my website. <laughs> so maybe we can do more. <laughs> and uh, I don't have any ill will. You know, he's again, he was very good to me uh, in some very formative moments and, and helped me through some tough times in my career. I was in Iraq working for him when my mom died. I had to go back home to bury my mom. And he's been a good boss for me. He mentioned that he encouraged you to go to Harvard and you went to the Kennedy School. I did. For, for an MPA, right? I did the mid career. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell yeah. me about that experience. Um, you know, I, I've taken a class or two in that department when I was at MIT in political science grad school. So I, I know it a bit. But what was it like for you? Well, great experience. It's funny because, you know, I was in Iraq and uh, General Petraeus was selected as one of America's great leaders, 25 leaders by the, the Center for Public Leadership there at Harvard. We did an interview with U.S. News uh, about that. And I used to love the evening because the, the phone from the States were great because it was in the evening in Baghdad, which meant we do it in his office. And, and then generally I got to eat dinner 
dinner there because he had a chef of his own. So he would take pity on the poor lieutenant colonel and I'd get dinner out of it. <laughs> and it, But it was really some lovely moments because he and I could kick back and just eat dinner and just you know talk. Some of my fondest memories of, of being in Iraq was around that, that conference table, both with him and then his successor, General Marty Dempsey, who ended up being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So I was very blessed. Anyway, so so I remember him kicking back, putting his feet in his desk. He goes, man, uh, Cyber Republic Leadership, that's the Kelly School. I was like, oh, okay. I don't know where that is. He goes, it's Harvard. I said, oh, okay. I wasn't aware. He's like, yeah, you know, they got a mid-career master's program. You're like tailor-made for it with your background. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if you remember, but I barely graduated West Point, Boston. <laughs> I mean, there's there was 900 people in my class. I was 600, right? I mean, I was I was tell people I was in the top two thirds of my class at West Point, and uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, and he laughed. He says, "Yeah, you know, it's been 18 years. You've improved." I was like, well, "That's true." And uh, so, sure enough, I, I looked into. It. I called my boss in the Army Public Affairs. Said that I had been selected to go to graduate school already, and but they sent me to Iraq instead because that's the Army and. Uh, so they kind of owed me, and um, I should have been in grad school instead of in Iraq, but it's all good. And uh, and luckily, the general there was a great guy, uh, uh, Brooks, General Vince Brooks, ended up being a four-star later. He said, you know, I like this idea. Let's figure it out. So I applied to the Kennedy School. If you know their system for the mid-careers, they really do build a class to try and like seed the school, the whole school, with some really interesting folks who can add a layer to the education. It's a very small group, a couple hundred, 400, I think. Um, most of them are international. My uh, classmates, we had a former prime minister in our class, for goodness sake, right? You know, a Mexican congressman and then me. And, and so I, at that point, I already had two Iraq tours under my belt. I'd worked at the invasion, you know, at the troop level. And then I'd been an advisor to the minister of defense of the country. So I was pretty, I was very well read in just as we were going into the surge period. So they they let me in, shockingly, uh, even gave me a scholarship, which is double shocking. <laughs> and uh, and so it was just such a wonderful experience because the thing about that place is, I was a Republican then. I was I was very conservative. I was a defense hawk. Um, I had heard the stories. Oh, Harvard, they hate the troops. You know that kind of stuff, and it's all garbage. You know, I got there. I was I was welcomed with open arms. It's an, a very intellectual, academic place where we have very tough conversations, respectfully and intellectually. And at least in 2007, it never devolved to f you, f you. It was it was much more. Like, well, I disagree. All right, that's fair. We can disagree. And also, I, I assume people knew with the background you had that you that you knew a lot of stuff they didn't know that was it that was that was just so wonderful i was invited to speak in classrooms professors invited me to speak i sat on two panels in the jfk forum what's really interesting is and they're doing it now is um so i, I worked for so david gergen ended up being my mentor i actually he paid for part of my scholarship which is a whole story um and so gergen if you know him he worked for three presidents he runs the center for public leadership and and he said hey i have some donors who want to put on a dinner for the veterans of Harvard. And I said, great, I'd love to. He goes, you can pay back your scholarship that way. I was like, okay. And I said, you know, but we have second lieutenants to put on dinners, right? I mean, I was, I was lieutenant colonel at that point. I'm like, you know, I could do more than a dinner. And I remember standing in his library there at the Center of Republic Leadership. I said, you know, David, you know, half the guys in this wall of biographies, I would say a third to a half learned leadership in the military. Just like you, Lieutenant JG, David Gergen, <laughs> who served in the Navy. And, and, uh, Let's do something about military leadership. And he loved it. So we ended up putting on a couple of seminars culminating in a, a really wonderful event, what's called the JFK Junior Forum there. It's famous up at Harvard. For it's where they have a lot of the big cheeses come speak. And I, I had several combat veterans and, and military veterans who include an injured guy and a guy who led Iraqis even um, to talk about military leadership. Uh, on the front lines, you know, what it's like, what does it teach us? We all wore our uniforms. We were all active duty military, co-hosted it with David. It was great. And then we went with this big giant traditional military dinner and the Dean was there and the president of the university was there and, and, and we really kind of immersed them in the military culture. I got to tell you, it was so well received. Um, so open arms. There's such an interest in our lives and, and what it means. You know, I'm going to be helping them out. Actually, the Institute of Politics there is um, led by a guy named Seti Warren, who's also a Navy veteran now, um, former mayor up there. And he is. Uh, they've actually created a new Veterans Impact Initiative that is cross-functional there at Harvard to look at the, the crossroads of veterans. Uh, civil military relations and the veteran experience in our community. I'll be advising them on that. So, you know, here 13 years later, 15 years later, we're discussing the same issues. But one of the best years of my adult life, my certainly of my military career, was that year I got to spend at Harvard having a very difficult intellectual, you know, experience that made me a better person, a better thinker, um, allowed me to be a better officer in the Army for a few years before I retired as a much better person. But uh, it's a great experience. It's a, it's a unique place. What did you learn about leadership in the army that you think applies to leadership in society more generally? 
Oh, that's funny. The first thing they teach you is um, leaders eat last. It's a big trope we use in the military. Leaders eat last. It's it's the idea that as a leader, that there's a certain responsibility that comes to the people you lead to put them first. Uh, and that literally displays itself in the military when you get food or chow out in the field or in combat and there's a limited amount the per- last person to eat is the leader because they may run out. And it's more important that the troops eat first. So leaders eat last is such a – it sounds like a simple trope, but it means so much to you. And so it means putting others before yourself. It means that those you lead are more important. Their safety, well-being, and and their achievements are before yours. So the great thing about being that leader is – you know, leaders get credit and, and then they also take the fault. I, I try in my work and in my personal life to, if one of my subordinates fails, to step in front of that bus for him and take responsibility. When I owned my own firm, if one of my employees made a mistake, I was the one who called the client and said, hey, we had a big screw up here. It's completely my fault. <laughs> if press release didn't go out, whatever it may be. And then when they succeed, I let them have the, hey, good news. Uh, Margaret did an incredible thing today for you. Because you know why? I'm the owner of the organization. I'm going to get credit or blame no matter what. It's e- it's better that my subordinates get the credit and they grow as leaders. So so I, I think for, for many years, those those experiences, those formative experiences, you know, sitting in the woods, being uncomfortable. I, I got to go to ranger school, which is a very difficult school. When I was a captain, I was, I was like the second oldest guy in my class when I went to ranger school, which is a whole story. But that was such a good experience for me to understand the a ground experience because I was an aviator. I was flying scout helicopters, right? To, to know what the experience of those who are on the ground going through and what they, the challenges they face made me a better leader. So I, I really did learn those years that it's not just about putting yourself in other people's shoes. If, if you had the opportunity to walk in them, you should do it. And that's what's great at the Army. I took it all the way to when I was a, a stinking PR guy. I was a public affairs officer for uh, an organization called Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq, MinSticky. What, what a name. That's David Petraeus for you. He loves acronyms. <laughs> um, and I was working for General Marty Dempsey uh, at the time. This is 2006, I guess. And five, five, six. Anyway, things were tough in Baghdad. But I used to tell General Dempsey, like, look, I cannot tell the media and the American people, which is my job, inform the American people of the activities of their military, uh, in this case, in combat, I had to experience it. So I would go out on patrols. And instead of just sitting in the briefing room like most of my peers, I would say, hey, let me go out in Baghdad and do a patrol in Abu Ghraib with this American military unit. I went up to Samar at the heat of the insurgency in Samara um, when the Al-Qaeda almost took over the town, eventually blowing up the famous minaret there uh, in a terrorist attack. Um, I actually sat in on the investigation of uh, the interrogation of a terrorist. And that way, when I went back and I talked to the New York Times, I mean, I had to deal with John Fisher Burns, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, was the bureau chief of the New York Times. I had to have my stuff together, right? I mean, you, you don't go to John Fisher Burns with some bullshit story, right? And And so – then I could, when John called me and said, well, Fred, I heard this story about the Iraqi soldiers doing X, Y, and Z. I said, well, you know, John, I was just up in Samara with the special forces guys. And this is what I saw with my own two eyes, right? So it made me a better communicator. And, and these are the lessons I've learned and I've taken with me through my civilian career and now my political consultancy and, and, and super PAC business to say, I put myself in these people's feet so I can, I can explain it. And I think it makes me a better communicator because I know – when my candidate's knocking on doors and somebody says to him, I've, I've been there, I said that door. You know what I mean? I can say, well, this is what they're feeling right now. They're frustrated because the damn turn lane hasn't been fixed. For, they've been telling their damn government about that turn lane, their highway. <laughs> you know, tell them how you're going to fix the damn turn lane. <laughs> you know, so so I, go, I, I do, I trace that there's a bright white line that goes back to um, Cadet Wellman um, going to jungle school in Panama in, in 1985. Right. And, and leading my fellow cadets through the jungle for the first time. And uh, I, I think that bright white line goes through my entire life here in my 50s now. These threads we carry through life with us, they, they, they don't sever very often, right? And they, some are good and some are bad. I mean, yeah. I, I bear the burden of having, you know, I have, I've dealt with what they call survivor's guilt. I lost two of my men in Desert Storm. Um, in a tragic, you know, crash when we were doing the air war before the ground invasion and, uh, two of my men lost and that, that left a thread too. I mean, when I went to Iraq again in 2003, I was a jerk, <laughs> you know, I joke about it with some of my soldiers. I mean, I, I, every one of my soldiers are going home. If I had to be an asshole to do it, they're all going home. And so you carry these threads. And then when I went into my civilian life and like many situations of PTSD, it, 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 it manifests itself in both good and terrible ways, mostly terrible. And, and I, I made a lot of mistakes and you have to own those threads as much as you do the good ones. How did your career take you to the Lincoln Project? 
It's classic story of the ties that bind, right? Ironically, we're talking about Men Sticky. So in 2005, I get summoned by Ambassador Khalil Azad's communications spokesman, a young, young, wonderful, one professional, uh, a young professional uh, who I'm still friends to this day. She says, "Hey, there's this guy visiting from the White House up at the embassy. I want you to meet him." I said, "Sure." Um, at the time, I've been General Petraeus' spokesman for a few, for several months, and. I was known to tell it like it is. Shockingly, I still do. And uh, so I got summoned. This guy's, this, I met this guy's tall, bald guy. Um, I met him at the Burger King there in the green zone. His name was Steve Schmidt. And he had been sent by the White House to do an investigation of, of why there was a disconnect between communications in Baghdad and Washington, D.C. And I did exactly what I do. I, I kind of double barreled him. You know, he's like, well, I don't I understand why you can't, we give the, we build a water treatment plant for a shake in this village. Why can't he just go on TV and say, thank you, America, for this water treatment plant. You've saved my village. And I said, well, Steve, here's why. Uh, the water treatment plant will get blown up. The sheikh will be assassinated. They'll kill his family. And for good measure, they'll kill his tribe members that are located in Syria too. Um, because while we talk about in Washington, D.C., that politics is a blood sport, here in Baghdad, it is. People actually die. And so I can't ask a sheikh or save a project I just built if I blow it up in the world and tell him how awesome it is because it will be destroyed in a minute. And he, and he, he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Nobody had said that, right? Everybody tries to like dance around the fact that we're at a freaking war and people die. And I've, I've had their blood on my hands. I lost my Iraqi sheikh. I lost my interpreter who's beheaded by al-Qaeda. You know, I, 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 I've seen it all. And so we formed a bit of a bond over that. And, uh, and I told him in that moment, I said, if you ever come back with your boss, vice president, don't stay in the green zone. I want you to go up to this base called Taji where we were building the Iraqi army. And uh, flash forward six months. Uh, General Marty Dempsey, now my boss, grabs, hey, we're going to Taji. We've got a VIP. I'm like, great. I said, well, let me bring my troops. He goes, no, no, just you. Grab a camera. I'm like, okay. So I grab a camera and we're sitting on the ramp at Taji Air Base. I'm like, hey, sir, what's going on? And who's visiting? What VIP? He goes, you know, I think it's the vice president. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, hey, you know. That's my fault. <laughs> yeah. Funny story, sir. This bald dude came about six months ago. I said, you should go to Taji. And and classic Dempsey. And I'm like, I hope I don't mind. Cut. I was, he was like, what the fuck do you do, Alvin? I was like, which happened, which is words that came out a lot. And uh, <laughs> sure enough, like every helicopter in Iraq shows up over Taji. I'm like, God damn, if Dick Cheney doesn't jump out of a helicopter, along with Steve Schmidt. And that son of a gun comes running up to me. I was sitting in the window, this, the door of this bus. And he punches me in the chest. He goes, we're here because of you, motherfucker. This better not suck. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you'll have to beep that. But uh, And by God, it didn't. It was a very good experience. You can actually Google the pictures. I took all the pictures of the, of the vice president of the United States meeting our actual Iraqi soldiers there in uh, 2005. But um, – so, so, so that connection was with Mr. Schmidt. With that, right. So when I retired and I started my own PR firm, of all things, I got hired by this company called Edelman. Uh, and, and I had so many contracts with Edelman at one point. They said, hey, come on up to D.C. We'll give you an office. And they gave me the traveling office of the guy named Steve Schmidt. I said, hey, is it that Steve Schmidt that used to work at the White House? Like, yeah. I'm like, well, I'll be damned, you know. So I find him in the global and I start sending him emails, taking pictures of me with my feet on his desk. And uh, we became good friends and partners. We did a number of work with uh, some great clients up there, GE and a couple other great clients. So, so he became a bit of a mentor of mine. Like we mentioned my earlier mentors, Marty Dempsey and, and, and David Petraeus. And so I fast forward to have my firm, pandemic hits, things were rough. Uh, I actually went to New York to run a COVID field hospital that was staffed by special operations veterans. A friend of mine was kind enough to invite me up. Was that one of the ones on a boat? Or was no, it, no, no. We were at New York Presbyterian. We were at Columbia's Baker Field. They they took one of those bubbles and put a hospital in it. It was really neat. And um, this is to me neat. It was really cool. Uh, they staffed it with special operations veterans. And, and my friend was the head nurse. She goes, hey, we forgot to hire any admin people. You want to do it? I'm like, sure. And so I ran a hospital. Have I ever run a hospital? No, I've never run a hospital, but I did. Anyway, made a little bit of press with that. Got some TV hits. And uh, Steve called me and I hadn't heard from him in a while. And so when I got back, though, it was obvious I couldn't save my company at that point. We'd lost so many clients with the pandemic. I had a lot of nonprofits. So I had to shut things down and to try. I gave my employees 30 days notice. So it was tough. Anyway, so I reached out to Steve. I said, hey, I go to my mentors. I said, hey, I'm looking for my next gig. What do you recommend I do? What do you think in this today's communications environment? And classic Schmidt, he calls me back at 1030 at night. He goes, ah. Oh. You're going to work for us. <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, doing what? He goes, uh, veterans. It's one of our key constituencies. We've been wanting to attack it. You know, there's women, there's there's evangelicals and veterans who are the Trump coalition. And uh, I want you to to run that pillar for us. I'm like, great. What does that mean? He goes, I don't know. We'll figure it out. I'm like, all right. Uh, and I, I called some of my other mentors like Mark McKinnon and I said, hey, should I do this Lincoln Project thing? I mean, even then they were controversial. And 
he said, yeah, they're doing good things. If you want to fight for our country, that's a great place to go. So I did. And uh, so I was brought in in uh, actually August of 2020. It's pretty late in the game compared to others and as the senior advisor for veterans issues. And so I managed all of our veterans work. I, I got Sully Sullenberger to do an ad with us. I got Rachel and Alex Vindman to do an ad. Um, gosh, Mark Hamill did an ad for me on, on absentee ballots. I focused a lot on the, the way that Trump um, really disrespected the military in a lot of ways. Um, so that was my, my remit. And uh, so I stayed through the, the campaign. Um, they were kind of say, hey, look, we're going to pay everybody through the end of January after the general is over. So I, I volunteered to help run, uh, work work our operations in Georgia a little bit. I did some organizing in Georgia for the runoff. Uh, and then January 6th hit. And I knew I had to do more. Before we get into that, um, because uh, tell me a little about the, like I, I interviewed Reed Galen. Yeah, um, Greg, man, uh, my boss. Yep. And I, and I've talked to, some other people who I think were associated, and Joe Trippi is now, he's been on the show. Yeah, he's a senior advisor as well. Yeah. And and was Stuart Stevens part of that? Or Caesar, he's, he's a senior advisor as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. So those people, I've talked to some of the sort of anti-Trump Republicans on this show, and I, I, um, I'm I glad that they were doing what they were doing. Uh, it's, it's somewhat controversial. And then there were some personal meltdowns among some of these people, you think? Uh, including, <laughs> well, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, see, Mr. Schmidt included, right? Tell me more about that experience. You said you were previously a Republican or mm-hmm. I don't know what you are. So now, 2015, but, I'm a Democrat yep, now. Yep. Why, what did you see as their motivations? What did you, what was it like working with them? How do you see their spot in the 2020 election? It was genuine. Um, I'm, I'm careful about that. I try, you know, like for me, I came from a place, you know, when, when, when he attacked John McCain in 2015, saying McCain wasn't a hero because he was captured. To me, that was the final straw for me to even pretend to be a Republican at that point when it was it was so poorly condemned by other Republicans. And I saw this with my peers. I, I saw the same thing with Steve. I saw the same thing with Rick. I saw the same with Reed. And say what you will about our, our Democrat colleagues. I, I, I love being a member of this party. I, I'm really proud to work with Democratic candidates. Um, I've met some incredible with people. I'm on the right side of history. But in many ways, um, I've been in a couple of interviews I've done lately. I talk about, do you watch Ted Lasso? Do you ever watch Ted Lasso? I haven't watched it. I keep meaning okay. to because people to. say you good need to get on it. Okay. But there's a character in there called Jamie Tart. And Jamie is sort of this super cocky superstar, right? And always fails to pass the ball to other people. And and the second season story arc for him is really interesting. I don't want to give it away, unfortunately, since you haven't watched it. But but the arc is that in a lot of ways he becomes a good guy. <laughs> And one of the assistant coaches, Roy Kent, who used to be a superstar, is like, that's the problem. You need an asshole, <laughs> right? And, and, and the team was suffering because there wasn't this one guy on the fo- football team and the soccer team who was willing to be the – you need that one guy. So, so you know, every team's got that one guy who's going to draw the yellow card. I, I think in many ways our coalition of the willing, uh, which the Lincoln Project was one of, and 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 that's the thing we're very careful about. Any of us associated with the Lincoln Project will tell you we didn't win it by ourselves. We we're very proud to be part of a larger coalition. We work with some great groups, all the way from Latino groups to women's groups to our friends at Midas Touch. I mean, all of us were on the same team. Um, but you do it's not a bad thing to have a guy wearing a black hat on the good guy team. You know, you got that one guy who's willing to do the hard things, draw the red card, right? So you're saying that Lincoln Project was that player. I think that people perceived that there is a tradition of Republican political consultants knowing how to go for the jugular. Yes. And that they- To include the gentleman I work with. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Rick, Rick Wilson did some hard things. I mean, these are the guys, that, and they admit that, you know, I mean, that's and that's the, all And that they also, because of their perspective- they they knew what the weak spots were and they knew what the uh, the persuadable audience might be able to hear precisely and, and, and so that i mean that's the theory of the case right that is that, the theory of the case and i think that history wills us out i think i think what i saw with my own two eyes as an out you gotta remember in many ways i'm forrest gump here okay look who the hell am i i was a freaking soldier i was a pr guy i floated into ex-republican politics and I, you know i mean and, and and, and I literally, I said to Steve, I don't know shit about politics. He goes, yeah, you do. You just don't know you do. I was like, oh, I do. And it was a running joke there with my colleagues at Lincoln that, you know, I was like, hey, whatever I saw, I did something good. They're like, they actually, you may actually know something about politics. I was like, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> uh, you know, and so in that sense, I think we were part of it. We we we, we used to say that we had the, the ban. Like when Steve Bannon given a talk and said that and these Lincoln Project guys, you know, if they peel off three to 4% of Republican voters that voted for Trump, they could win. 
And, and we used to joke that was the Bannon line. We actually had posters made, the Bannon line, that our target wasn't Dems. It was 3 to 4% of persuadable Republicans. Why did we have a veterans guy? I ran ads in Stars and Stripes and Military Times newspapers targeting Trump. People thought we were nuts. Kurt Bardello, my colleague Kurt Bardello had the idea, and I give him full credit. Um, but people thought we were crazy because like, they're hardcore Republican. No, they're not. If you know the military, they're also hardcore moralist. They're also hardcore ethicist, you know? And so there's this discount. While they may be conservative, they're also appalled by this person who, who literally said that guys who got killed in combat are losers and suckers. I want to ask you about Trump and your perspective on him because to me, like I've spent the last six years trying to understand to some degree people's affinity for him right? Like you're talking about leadership and you said leaders eat last. He has to be the absolute opposite of that, right? Like Trump eats only. <laughs> and yet there's something about the big, allegedly tough guy, successful guy that the, the masculine pose that he puts forward on the world that attracted a lot of military as well as a lot of civilians. How, how did you personally see him and how did your community see him, would you say? I saw it early as a pose. You know, I studied history. I, I studied Mussolini and Hitler and, you know, and Stalin. I mean, I, I, you can recognize the traits of an authoritarian. So for me, very early on, I saw the traits of an authoritarian from the moment he came down that escalator. I saw just the look, just look at the picture of him riding down that escalator with the fake, the fake, uh, you know, the, the fake crowd, the, the fake the, crowd. The crowd he paid for. Right. So from, from the minute he decided to announce, he was he was pantomiming um, dictators of the past. And so for me, the moment he came on the escalator, I said, this guy's full of shit. Um, it's it's truly just an act. And then and then as the more he talked, the more I was like, this is outrageous. I mean, again, going back to that moment when he said, well, I, I like because he'd been criticized by McCain, then McCain didn't count anymore. He's not a hero because he got captured. I like people that weren't captured. And, and you knew you were in trouble because so few of my peers, my fellow veterans, not few, but a good half of my fellow veterans said, ah, well, you know, McCain wasn't that great. It's like, whoa, we'll slow, slow down here. I mean, that's when I knew we were in trouble, that the, that this, this man had poisoned the well so much that a red line had been crossed so blatantly, just blown apart, nuked, if you will. And he sailed right through it like no big deal with people that should have been offended. My God, just months later, he was hosted at the annual Memorial Day motorcycle ride, Rolling Thunder, which is dedicated, of all things, to honoring POWs and MIAs. And they actually hosted him as the speaker at the end of the rally, a guy who had said he didn't like POWs. So that's the dichotomy and the dissonance that we face with Trump, right? That the words, the, the macho speak, the uh, screw them all, the fight them, beat them up, those who are attracted to that, 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 that masculinity attraction are were attracted to that. And, and by the way, what we found is statistically not all military people are that. There's, there's this great idea, and you know as a political professional, if you've worked in this field, and especially what you do with, with your former firm, is – if we we run great danger if we block people and assume they're all the same, right? Not all suburban moms think the same way. Not all blacks think the same. I think one of the last communities that's constantly stereotyped as being a same thinking block is my peers in the military and the veterans community. And any of us who serve, especially, and I have to tell you, especially since 9-11, because we had an entire generation of millennials and now Gen Zs who've actually saw people like me building schools. They saw people like me who was actually a pilot that was actually bringing food to kids. I built a clinic, okay? Um, and, and they said, whoa, okay, because our war in Iraq wasn't just blowing stuff up. It was also rebuilding the country. And so you had this wave of young men and women who joined, who, who knew they could do both those things. They could kick down doors, but the next day they may be sitting there drinking tea and eating sheep with a shake, and, and there was this humanitarian aspect to it. It was a part of society that was integrated earlier. Very, 1949. And, and which right. it's – and which – which has had to pay a lot of attention to issues of race and other dividing lines in our society. There's no way. There's no way to deny the military provides a stepping. I was a kid from the you know the exurbs of Missouri of St. Louis. Actually, suburbs. I was inside the Beltway of St. Louis. Uh, you know, I, I was well off. We were a white family. My dad was middle class, GI Bill, World War II vet. We were well off. I had some privilege, but I certainly wasn't rich. We couldn't afford the deposit when I went to West Point. My dad was unemployed when I went to West Point. Um, one of the reasons I went was because we couldn't afford you know, and so uh, it was free. Can't beat the price. The military provides such a valuable stepping stone out of 
poverty and out of uh, out of uh, in, in different classes for the military that that many do seek as an option to better make a better life themselves, be it through education, be it through pay, be it through opportunities to see the world. And, and there's no denying that. And so that is such a unique melting pot of people, but it also produces a unique melting pot of people. Not all of us are hardcore conservatives. Ah, the flag or nothing, you know, America, F, yeah. Some of us are like, well, we see what we've done wrong. We, we see the mistakes we've made. Many of us who served in Iraq were like, why am I here? I mean, I'm, I never found those nukes. A lot of us were, why are we in Afghanistan after 20 years? I mean, why am I finding the longest war in American history? Yeah, well, you got to have those thoughts when you're stuck you over there, away from your family, right? When your friends are dying when you're when you're when you're when your kids are alone. I did four combat tours, um, Desert Storm plus three Iraq tours. I went to a war every other year for th- six years. Okay, I, I didn't see any of my daughter's high school. Except one year when we were at Harvard, she was a senior in high school. I was there for high school for her senior year. You know, she changed schools three times. The sacrifices we put upon our military. It needs to be real. It needs to be for the right reasons. So what do we have with Trump? One of his first acts is sent troops to the border. Why? No good reason. So we got these kids sitting down the border away from their families. They've already been at war for 20 years or 17 years at that point. You see what I'm saying? So it's just so political you, bullshit. It's political bullshit. And 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 one thing you can say about the military, we have a bullshit sensor that's like nothing else, right? We we know when people are using us. We know when people are f- f- screwing with us. We know the people with the fake, fake patriotism. I yeah, call it patriotism. <laughs> you know, we, we know when they're full of shit. We we know we're being used. We have a sixth sense and we're paranoid about it. So I think a lot of the military saw that. The hugging and the flag. Oh, I love the troops. I mean, let's not forget. One of the things I, I piled onto was, you know, Trump blamed military Gold Star families for giving him COVID. He said it was their fault that he got COVID. I'm actually proud of the fact that I'm the guy that put it all together because a friend of mine was at that event, posted pictures on Facebook. That's how we found out about it. And then we discovered the first lady was there. So, so because nobody knew what the hell he was talking about, you know. And so, a lot of the military people saw that and they said, "All right, this guy is not my thing." Because you saw his voting percentage went down with the military and the veterans. It, 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 not a big number, but again, I wasn't trying to move ten or twenty. I was trying to move four. That's all I needed. I need 4% of veterans. I need 4% of women. I need 4% of evangelicals to say, you know what? This is not my guy. And if you look at the results, the coalition, the Democrats, the great leadership for the Democrats, all the other groups that did this, we got about 3 to 4%. Just over what we needed in certain states. Um, w is a W. You started to say, uh, started to talk about January 6th and how that seemed to affect you or change what you wanted to do. Tell me about your reaction to that day? Well, I, I often tell, I joke that it's a really good thing my 23-year-old son was at my house that day because I was sending off some really fire tweets. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you can't say that. Delete that. Like, oh, delete. Uh, I mean, I was to, to, to see my capital being attacked live in real time as they're trying to certify the electoral call vote. I saw from the minute it started that this is insurrection. This is sedition. This is this is them trying to stop our government doing its do, its process. And uh the fury I felt was second only to 9-11. Um, and 9-11 caused me to rejoin the army. I was a civilian. I was an army reservist in 9-11. I was running for mayor of Peachtree City, Georgia on 9-11. And I called my reserve unit was mobilized the next day. Never went back. I did eight more, nine more years in the army. I felt that same passion on January 6th. I said, I can't, you know, technically I was out of work with the Lincoln Project at the end of that month. At least that's what we thought. We weren't sure what the future held at that point. They were keeping a few of us, but they were going with that process. And I was frustrated. And and and, and my predecessor, Sarah, um, wonderful human being, by the way, just didn't really want to be executive director anymore. She'd been through it. I mean, it was a tough year. You know, these guys were burned out. And, you know, and I'd run a business. So so I, I offered up to, to Reed Galen, the, the, as you know, the, he's the he's the sort of the, uh, the lead of the founders, he's the treasurer of the board. And I said, hey, Reed, look, if you're looking for another executive director, if, if Sarah's done, I'd be happy to take that job and take leadership role here. And uh, and and he said, yes, I can't believe it. I sent a text and he said, yes, I'm still shocked. I mean, I've been applying for the job, I guess, since August, technically, right? But uh, but I was real fortunate they gave that opportunity. Of course, my first day in that job was 1 February, uh, same day as the New York Times story coming out about some of the challenges of one of our pre- previous co-founders. And so I ended up running an organization in crisis for about eight months. But I think I think we had a, a role to play. I think the Lincoln Project and, and their allies like like Operation 147, like Minus Touch, like, you know, Don Winslow's out there, like all these different groups. I think we all have a role to play in this and, and my new organization. So flash forward to today, 
Um, I had I moved back to St. Louis, my hometown. I, I met with some alumni of Claire McCaskill's campaign. I've met a lot of wonderful folks here, and and they've been kicking around the same frustration with January 6th that I had. That not only was that day, in many ways, America's beer hall putsch, which was November 8th, 9th, 1923 in Germany. If you know the history. Hitler's first, the Munich Putsch, where Hitler tried to overthrow the government of Bavaria and then marched to Berlin, uh, emulating what Mussolini had done in Rome a year, um, just a month before. Um, obviously, he's a, he was a huge fan of Mussolini. Um, Who it failed. He? Uh, Hitler was, yeah, <laughs> funny thing that. <laughs> funny thing that. He failed because the Bavarian government, the leadership there said no, and they got in a firefight with the uh, the Bavarian police and the troops. And up 16 Nazis got killed and four police got killed. And he was put in jail for a while where he learned that that wasn't the way to take power in Germany, that what he would do instead was use the very weak democratic process to take power. And of course, 10 years later, 1933, he becomes chancellor. A, a month later is the Reichstag fire. A month later from that, there's the emergency decrees where he outlaws the press, he outlaws freedom of, of, of gathering. Of course, not long after that, we have Crystal Nacht, although there are terrible, terrible things that happen. So, so from all that, the point, the lesson is, isn't just that January 6th was a terrible day. The lesson we should learn is that it's not over yet. That our, our opposition learned a lesson that that didn't work. And so what's happened since? Well, we have over 500 Republican instituted laws, bills across 49 states trying to restrict voting rights or roll it back in some form, right? We've got attacks on education, what can be taught in our schools. There's a famous quote from Mussolini that at any moment in any time of the day, he knows exactly what's being taught in every Italian school. Controlling education is a big part of the autocratic playbook, right? Controlling the press is a big part of the autocratic playbook. And so in the years since that uh, January 6th, we've seen these things unfold. And so our frustration among my colleague, Cyrus Schick, my co-founder, was it's not over yet that that the act that occurred, just like the Beer Hall Putsch, the follow-up is still going on. And if we don't wake up to this and fight back in a real way that we could very well lose our democracy here in America, the unthinkable – um, if we don't wake up and pay attention. So our idea is to build a super PAC. We did a PAC because this is political, obviously, um, uh, to reach out to those unengaged voters. There's about any poll will tell you about 27% of Americans just aren't involved, right? How do we get hold of them? They're worried about their economy. Well, History tells us that economies fall to shit underneath autocrats. <laughs> yeah, the, the old joke that Hitler made the trains run on time is not actually true. They did run on time, but they ran out of coal. And so, you know, auto, autocracies do not make the economy better, contrary to popular belief. So we have to get through to them that your economy is going to fail, your pocketbook issues are going to fail if we end up losing our democracy. If you can't vote, or God forbid, you vote, and the Georgia state legislature decides that there was some, quote, irregularities, they can throw the whole damn thing out because they passed a law a year ago that when nobody was paying attention, right? So we have to get hold of those folks, find messages that reaches them, and at the same time, fight back. I mean, how do I fight back against that law? I mean, has anybody built a playbook that tells you how to get around those laws? Like, yeah, you're not allowed to drink water in line, but you could drink Coke, <laughs> whatever it may be, you know? So hire some lawyers and figure that stuff out. What, those, so we've, we've got to remit that when we built it, we also didn't want to just be like another video production group or um, talking to our own people, right? There's there is that that unfortunate we kind of can sometimes fall into that place where we're sort of just talking to ourselves. And so we very carefully designed the Beer Hall Project to to fit into the coalition to fill a gap of research and 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 where where campaigns don't have the money to do really in-depth focus groups and stuff to give that information to whoever wants it to to fit in with an educational process our videos won't be like you know hyper like my, my friends at lincoln project which i love or my friends at midas touch who did a wonderful short almost a documentary the other day about the events of the coup um where we'll explain the issues you know more of like a now this news kind of thing right so so we've we've got some pretty ambitious plans um no question about it. We've had some wonderful response to our video. We, we launched with no followers. We have about 12,000 followers on Twitter now. We'd love to have everybody else join us at Beer Hall Project. Edward Norton, the actor, was kind enough to do the voiceover for our ad, volunteered on his own when I told him what we were doing. He's just a neat guy. His dad's a former Marine from Vietnam. His dad's a Vietnam vet. Got some really wonderful grassroots supporters been sending us some money. I mean, we're, we're off and running. Uh, hopefully I can find some bigger donors and we can get some really cool stuff done. But, but we're off. We're getting there. So I'm excited about this new project. So let me understand this a little bit more. I, that was a good description. One, is Lincoln Project full speed ahead? Are they under good hands? Are they falling apart? No, they're, they're still going well. Why would you leave a large, uh, well-fundraised group, which you were executive director of? Just, just let me understand that first. 
Well, I left executive director after the crisis is over. Once we had the, you know, like a lot of crisis things, it takes a lot out of you. It takes a lot out of everybody. If you ever followed a crisis at a corporation, they usually change out CEOs when the crisis is over. You know, I, I didn't mean to be a crisis executive director, but I ended up being one. You have to do hard things in a crisis. You got to tell people, you got to tell powerful people no. You got to, you got to turn off the social media for a few days, you know. So I, I had to do really hard things. And so at the end of that, we were all sort of exhausted. The founders had, had you know, just less people, you know, there was eight of them to start off with. There's about three left at this point. When you had a committee of eight, you needed an executive director. When you got a committee of two, maybe you don't, <laughs> right? And so we're almost stepping on each other at that point, right? So, so it was a mutual agreement that, like, hey, we're going to run things more directly. You know, Rick and Reed and, and, and Stuart, and, I, and that's great. So they came to me and said, hey, look, we're we're at Gus. So that's fine. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I had a great experience, and um, and I, I think they're doing the right things for what they need to do, and it's fantastic. And I'm proud of the work I did. And it, it was exhausting. There was days I, you know, I was I, 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 I've got a girlfriend uh, who's a saint, <laughs> you know, Valentine's dinner was me spent outside the restaurant talking on the phone. It takes a real, real strong woman to put up with that kind of stuff and what I had to do. And I am so appreciative to the leadership of that organization that gave me that. Look, you and I would not be talking if they hadn't taken a gamble on a guy like me out of nowhere to, to come in. So, so I became a senior advisor and now I've got this new interest. I've got the beer hall project. I've got this new thing called chapter where influences can lead like a, basically a, a month long, like reading group kind of thing. I'm, I'm going to do that next month. So I have just so much going on. I got, I've got a book I'm working on. So, so for me, it was time, um, to try some new projects out. So, so we've left on the best terms. I'll actually be leaving officially at the end of this month and um, in, in a very friendly and, and, and we're still partnering together. I was just on their, their um, broadcast the other day. I'll be on the podcast next month. And, but I think they're in good hands. Reed and Rick and, and Stuart and having Joe Trippy there is amazing. He's a brilliant democratic strategist. Um, they've just launched this thing called the union, which is going to be a, essentially a coalition of groups, pro-democracy groups. So I think they're on the right track. Um, I think there's a place for them as, as with all of us in the coalition. When I hear somebody say, I've started a new group. <laughs> no, Jesus, not another one. <laughs> and I've also a political consultant. I'm also working on a book. And I also have this chapter thing. I get a little nervous about, I would for myself, like, is this going to get enough attention? I have no trouble being persuaded that January 6th is super dangerous and that anything that places that in the context of an ongoing threat and uh, and puts focus on it and is trying to deal with that and marshal people through research and all the other things that you're talking about is a good idea. But the challenge is large. The group is small. What's the plan to like have real impact? Because oh, damn it, yeah. we want you to. Oh, you yeah. know? Well, look, I, I don't be fooled. It's not. It's a full time job for me. That's why I'm not the executive director. By the way, Cyrus is the executive director. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, why do you say a word about Cyrus? Cyrus, Cyrus Schick, incredible young man. Um, Cyrus has got a background in campaign politics. He was with Claire McCaskill. He was with John Hickenlooper. And he's been on a number of Democratic campaigns. Uh, does a lot of the grassroots stuff, which is really important what we're going to be was doing. Was it your idea or his idea? Or how did you guys uh, come together? It was one of those interesting, uh, a wonderful guy named Stephen Weber, who's also a, a former state rep here in Missouri. He was actually the chairman of the Democratic Party of Missouri. Um, is now doing some union work. Um, Steve and I have been friends for years via Twitter, thank God. And we had lunch one day and he invited Cyrus who was in town from Nashville and and we started just banging it like these things happen right three guys banging their heads together and as Cyrus and I we both knew we were passionate about this topic we were both sort of looking for a way to express that that's not and again we both are smart enough to know that there's a million PACs there's a million groups there's a million nonprofits if we were going to do something it had to be different had to be effective in its own way or we weren't going to waste our time We've been very methodical in that process to make sure we did something that was a little bit different, and that's what we're trying. So, so Cyrus is, you know, Cyrus is, is full time. He's a terrific, terrific leader. I'm the co-founder. Um, don't be fooled by those other things I mentioned. That this is this is truly an important job for me. And and so we're able to to reach out, use our networks. We've been very blessed to build, especially to kind of highlight this issue and then, and then push it harder and and bring it into the forefront and, and in ways that are unique. And and the wonderful thing about I've got a nice following that I've been very blessed to have with, of really passionate people. Who come to me and volunteered their services. So we're building fast. Um, I mean, I've had professional retired journalists, investigative journalists come to me. I've, we've got some wonderful, powerful people who want to who are worried about this too, because it is, it's not just the violence of January 6th, it is the aftermath and what's next for our democracy that matters the most. January 6th was the start, not the finish. I think we are more likely than not to be 
in an area of losing for a while. I think we're in a very dangerous place. If we don't, if we don't pay attention, if law, if the law doesn't catch up to some of these people, that's one of the dangerous parts. And you know, when, I think one of the worst th- words I hear, worst phrases I hear a lot is, "We just want to get back to normal." Um, we're not. Des- it's, we're nowhere desire, close to that. We're never going to be normal. And 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 normalcy. There's there's a theory in social sciences. I think it's called a penetration drill, where they'll do an experiment where a norm of society will be penetrated we broken right a normal society will be broken will be penetrated and then if it's not reset back to that norm which means people go to jail people pay a price if you don't reset that Fix line the broken window. that becomes the new norm right so yep. exactly so if we if we have somebody who's as disgusting as trump who showed us the hatch act was a joke if they show us that they can do whatever they want. They can they can they can make money off their hotel. They can they can funnel bribes through their hotel, a block from the White House. They can use their personal businesses for gain while as the president. If we don't reset that aggressively by tightening the laws, but by we prosecuting, been, we're those, not, and we're, we're not. Uh, we're not right, exactly, and this is my frustration. Well, we just want to be normal again. Yeah, but you blew it because now normal means we should have jerk- impeached him. It was. Right. We should have taken him right. off. Right. So the new normal, unfortunately, that new normal is the somebody else has learned their lessons. The next guy may 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 be Trump. That's the worst part. It may actually be Trump. Or the next guy may be something awful like Ron DeSantis, who's just as evil. Or and, Josh Hawley, who's quite right. Josh Hawley, quietly evil. Um, these people may come in and and they learn now they know, okay, Hatch Act won't hurt me. Uh, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter if I make money. It doesn't matter if I use the police. I can turn the Border Patrol police. I mean, people blame the military for Lafayette Square. That was the park police. The park police uh, in the riot gear. It was a park policeman that took a, a riot shield and beat that Australian TV crew. Okay? So if the president is able to manipulate these parts of our institutions to his own gain that easily, only imagine what the next guy could do if he's actually backed by law now, like they're trying to do. So so for me, this return to normal makes me insane. It's the most dangerous words I've ever heard, right? In the business, you used to joke, the most dangerous words are, we've always done it that way. What's worse is we're accepting the new way, right? And that's my fear for our democracy right now. This is my fear. This is why I, I joke about that other stuff. That's stuff I do at night. Fighting for our democracy is my full-time job, and and it sounds cheesy. And, and I said this on the other day, I would rather be accused of overreacting and hyperventilating now than sitting in a jail 10 years from now going, you know, I should have done more, right? <laughs> and, and I don't want to be that guy, you know? I'd rather be wrong now than regret it later. What do you think about naming your group? Most people in this country uh, don't know what a putsch is, and they think a beer hall is a place that you drink. <laughs> and so if they hear beer hall project, like it's going to, it's going to take the more historically informed to grasp that. Like how- well, that's part of our project, right? Part of our goal is to inform them. Right. And it's funny, the earth rule course, I, I was talking to a wonderful guy, Congressman Paul Hodes the other day, former Congressman. And, and his first question was, you know, the rule of politics is never mention Nazis, <laughs> right? The old, uh, what Godwin's law. Right. Uh, and I think in many ways, that's actually a way to control our speech. Right. But we know how Hitler gained. I'm not talking about the Holocaust. I'm not any of that. I'm talking about there was an autocratic movement that gained power, the certain pattern. And that pattern is obvious. And he gained power little by little with the accommodation of other people to his continued pressure right and behavior that broke norms and used external violence strategically but also went through normal channels of the democracy and the loopholes in the rules. Just and the that's way how Trump, he took power. Right? Yes, it is. That's how he t- and that's how Trump could take power, right? Is finding the edge. When, when you have a president whose first question isn't, is it legal? Is it illegal? Is it moral? Is it immoral? The first question is, can I get away with it? That's where we're at. Well, how far can I go? And, and, and Trump showed all the way. It doesn't matter. There's no price from his own party. There's no price from the institutions that should have stopped him. Now, a year later, there's nobody in jail that that, that instituted this, this crisis. Now, that's getting better. I, I remain cautiously optimistic. The Oath Keeper indictments was very encouraging to me. But I am worried that we're not going to see indictments. They created fake, fake electoral um, certification letters. They were fake that were fraudulent, that said the men, the, the, the signers gathered in the Capitol. They did not. They're frauds. They, they sent a fraudulent document to the National Archives. Those people need to be prosecuted, 
right? And so I worry that in the effort to just move on, that the effort to go to normal, that will allow a new line to be drawn that now gives our opponents much more room to do really horrible things because that's the new norm. That is my fear. Well, I just want to pass my agenda. That's great. I, I said a joke on Twitter the other day. It was probably inappropriate. But I was like, I, I had this vision of 10 years from now, all these Democratic congressmen sitting in jail together talking about their great policies they would have enacted. And that's my fear. You know, it, it is, as my colleague Tara Setmayer says at Lincoln Project, you know, too often the Democrats are bringing a policy pen to a gunfight. And so I've got a gun, you know, and, and, I, and for reasons I can't explain, I've been given a I've been given a pretty good platform and the opportunity to, to say what I feel and reach some people. So I just sort of feel like it's my duty to try. I'm all about just giving it a shot. You know, I, I always run to the sound of the guns and I just feel like I'm still running the sound of the guns and I have to, we have to. I've, I've had a conversation with a number of people who happen to be familiar with the German history and who are really worried in this moment about the similarities and, and, the vulnerabilities of this country. Now, I think our strengths are are great uh, yet, but um, they've asked me this question. They've said, what can I do? Who is doing the right things? And, and honestly, I've done 700 plus interviews of people who I think have different parts of that answer. Ah, uh, see, there you go. Right? And you're one of them. I'm right, I'm one know. of, yeah, I'm not right. the. <laughs> I'll never claim to be the. <laughs> but like, what, what is your answer to someone who asks me that question? What would your answer be? Well, it's the same way I answer people when they used to say, hey, Fred, how do I help veterans? And I said the same thing, start local. One of the key parts of this overthrow of our government is that it's occurring in state houses, it's occurring in city halls, it's occurring in county councils, it's occurring in school board meetings. There's been a cycle where our opponents have knowingly decided that taking over the election boards and taking over school boards is a path to victory for them and for long-term gain. Look at all these crazy laws like the abortion one from Texas and the gun cooperation law that came out of Missouri last year where state troopers aren't allowed to cooperate with the federal government. They literally defunded the police in Missouri because they were getting money for these federal task forces. And they can't get them now. These foolish laws are now being copied. What's the first thing that Glenn Youngkin did? He copied DeSantis. Okay. And then, and now, now he announced yesterday, he copied Governor Parson from Missouri with this call this number to turn in teachers that are saying wrong things. They're doing that in Missouri. The, the AG Eric Schmidt here in Missouri is doing that, running for Senate, using the Attorney General's position. So these crazy ideas are coming from states and the local level. So I, I urge people to not lament, not just be on Twitter, but go to your damn school board meeting, you know, see what your opponents are saying and push back. And by God, get somebody to run, run everywhere. Um, there shouldn't be a Republican running unopposed on this planet, but they do every day at state level and local level. So we've really got to step up in our local communities because believe it or not, we're going to lose our country one city and county and, and, and school board seat at a time. So that's a big part of it. The other part is I would love for you to invest your money in groups that are truly trying to make a difference. And that's not just me. There's others. There's plenty of them. There's candidates that are making a difference. Invest in smart candidates. Um, but be engaged in your community. It's more than just going on Twitter like me and being angry. When's the last time you went to a city council meeting? Never. Well, why? Why? Go go see what's being said in your city. It's going to be shocking to you. You uh, modestly didn't say Muir Hall Project ought to be what you should support. But like, if you're making that case to someone, a potential donor or volunteer or you know partner of some sort, why Beer Hall Project? For us, it's very simple. We're going to invest the money we raise and, and, and our, our, our efforts into understanding that question right there. Okay, so because I get asked a lot, Fred, I understand. How do I reach my grandma who's lost her mind to Fox News? Well, let's ask that question. And, and there are people asking it, but not of them aren't working together. They're not coming up with the answers. I would like to invest our money to do the focus groups, do the research, partner with organizations that are already doing this. We can do it together. Invest more money in those efforts to say, how do I reach a person who is so far down the road that they don't see the facts? in front of them. And then how do I activate people like the ones who just asked you, how can I help? How do I reach 27% of Americans who call themselves politically unengaged? How do I understand them so I can reach them in a way that they're activated and understand the danger of the community? Look, Glenn Youngkin won Virginia because a million people stayed home between 2020 from the general election for Biden and the, the governor election. One year later, a million less people voted. And so the Republicans took a purple state. And so if we don't find a way to reach those people, we can't. And then the other one is pushing back. 
How do we push back against these laws? Not just register more people to vote. No. How do I find loopholes in their laws? We just talked about it, right? One of the things Republicans have done really well is they found all the loopholes, right? Trump found all the loopholes. I don't think we're doing that on our side. I don't think the pro-democracy movement saying, well, here's your, your draconian law. Here's a loophole in it. Hey, hey, activists in Georgia, here's how you can get around this ridiculous requirement here. Do it. And then, by the way, I'd love to see the state legislature have to reconvene, try to fix their broken law because we discovered the loopholes. You know what I'm saying? So while Alec and the Heritage Foundation are writing all these laws, I'd like to see a, a similar Democratic coalition seeding how to beat them back. So just like World War II, yes, Germany did horrible things, the Holocaust, the invasion of Europe, um, you know, all those things. But what beat them was a strong coalition of allies who didn't necessarily all see eye to eye coming together and fighting back, right? And so the Beer Hall project is that part of it. We're going to find the way to communicate. We're going to activate people. We're going to invest in organizations actually pushing back against the Oath Keepers and infiltrating them and doing those things that, that good men must do to win this moment. Uh, and, and and by the way, we're, we're going to do it. It does take a ton of money. It takes a little bit of money and some investment. And my dream is there's someone who who is has been a donor and, and, and says, you know, I want to invest in a group that's actually doing things, um, not just giving money to candidates, but actually investing in research and investing in activities that are going to turn back the tide against this anti-democratic movement. So that's my dream. I've had some wonderful conversations with some, some wonderful people who understand the threat we face, who have been very generous. And if we could find a few people who are willing to invest in a startup pack and be informed what we're doing. I mean, if, if you look at what I did at Lincoln Project Executive Director, we actually issued our very first financial stewardship report. One of the only super PACs that's ever done that. We literally issued essentially an annual report saying, all right, this is where your money went. Contrary to what you're believing, we spent the money on this, 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 and this, and this. And Beer Hall Project intends to be the same way, that this is where your money went. It's not going to overheads going to research, it's going to targeted educational ads, it's going to targeted activities to counter the messaging of our opponents. So I, I'm passionate about this project because I'm with a really good guy, Cyrus. His moral compass points the right way. I, I think mine does, and we're going to do the right things to help a coalition to win this thing. I, I'm proud to be a part of something that's going to do that fight. I mean, anytime you're starting a new enterprise, it requires all of the skills of entrepreneurship that you would find in other spaces, right? Yeah, it's still a business, yeah. What have you learned so far? You're just get, you're just off the ground. What have you learned so far about doing that in the political space? It's it's similar, right? I mean, you're looking for investors. You're looking for uh, traction, right? You're looking for uh, making a splash with your first product, right? And that's that's why when we did our very first ad, I hired a guy named Jay Toscano. Oh, I had him recently on the show. Yeah, you know Jay. So Jay did my ad, right? So he did. He's won awards. He won awards the Sullenberger ad. He won awards for the ad with Michael Steele during the cycle for Vote Vets. My friends at Vote Vets, whom I'm very very proud to partner with, my old friend John Soltz over there, and so. Um, I knew we had to have a really big splash. And then I started reaching out to my friends. It's funny. I DM Edward Norton. I've known him for a while through my work with uh, uh, some other pro-democracy work. And uh, I just said, hey, I'm starting this new thing. This is what we're going to be doing. Here's the details. And God bless him. He came right back and said, all right, you need a narrator? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I didn't even get a chance to ask him, right? So I knew that as an entrepreneur, you got to come out of the gate strong. It was very powerful to have a voice like that, that unique voice of Edward Norton, that unique talent of Jay Toscano. Is it expensive to get those kind of people? More expensive? Yes. Uh, it it would have done me no good to have me walk down the street on my iPhone, right? <laughs> so, so I knew we had to make an impact early on. I knew I had to reach out to people and have some supporters and some advocates and some influencers. So, so I was very careful to reach out to my friends and say, hey, can you support our efforts? I knew I was going to have to use my platform. I'm, I'm blessed with about 220,000 followers on Twitter. It gives me a, a unique voice that is able to reach people, some friends in the journalism world that I called some colleagues I've worked with in journalism for the last 15 years in my professional life. You have to be smart about your money. You have to work with good people. You have to have a mission statement that's clear and a goal that's clear from the start. And I think the Lincoln Project, they've, they've given interviews, they've said very clearly, you know, we wrote an op-ed. We didn't know we were going to start a movement. You'll laugh. I don't know if you remember this. This is an old IBM commercial. And they had a whole series where they were consulting people. And there's this commercial that shows these people sitting on a computer in this big empty space. And they hit, they hit the enter. He goes, okay, we're live. Bing, we have our first sale. Yay. And then it goes, bing, 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 bing. And they sit back and like, oh shit, we succeeded, right? And I used to tell clients all the time, you should be prepared for success. Um, and so I think too often startups don't prepare for success. And in many ways, we had that. We we came off the ground running. We, we, we've raised some lovely funds, grassroots wise, able to pay our bills. And, and uh, um, we've already got like 12,000 followers in two weeks on Twitter, which is unheard of. I had zero. One of the biggest rules on social media is 
don't launch an organization with zero followers, <laughs> right? But we did. We launched on day one with zero. I literally turned on the social media that day and we've done well. So so it's the same entrepreneurship things I've been teaching to fellow veterans for the last 10 years. I actually taught entrepreneurship, uh, a thing called Dog Tag Bakery up in Washington where they teach veterans entrepreneurship. And, um, and it's no different now. We're going to be very frugal with our money. We're not going to get carried away. We're going we're gonna to work with smart people who want to do the right thing and, and can help us move to the next level. And then uh, and then now I we're in that phase of trying to find those investors, those donors, if you will, who are willing to invest in two guys with a big idea that needed need, need that help. Well, I appreciate you talking to me about it. I, I know it's really early. Sometimes it's uh it's risky to to be uh, to, to be honest when you're just getting off the ground, but I, I appreciate you doing that. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? I think you did a great job. I think, you know, it, uh, I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. I don't talk about my political career much, so it's, it's, it's different. I haven't had, I had such a short one. I do believe there are some, some great candidates out there that are doing the right things. I, I do believe what, what they say, we got to register to vote and vote, but, but I do, I hope people invest their time and their support and their money in organizations that are, are trying to do the right thing and, and are, are fighting for the good. And again, I, I hope people, I hope your whole projects who they'll invest in. I, I, I'm really, I think we're going to do some good stuff and and uh, I think we're going to go places that are, are different. And like you said, we're going to have very honest conversations. We, we, we named it very aggressively for a reason because we want that to be clear. There's historic precedent. It's happened before is our tagline. And I, I don't want it to happen again. Well, don't go gentle. I mean, it's not my style. <laughs> I'm not known for my subtlety. <laughs> All right. Well, Fred, good to talk to you. Uh, anything else you want to say? Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Like I said, follow us on Beer Hall Project. Follow me, F.P. Wellman, Frederick Paul Wellman on Twitter. That's where a lot of my crazy ideas come from. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity, man. Thank you. That was Fred Wellman. Fred is at beerhallproject.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.